Well, welcome, folks. We really appreciate you listening. Today, we're honored to have a special guest. Uh, Judge Chris Skelly is with us today. Um, Judge Skelly is known in the legal profession as one of the best mediators and arbitrators in the state, and uh, it's kind of hard to get on his calendar. So we're honored that he's going to spend a couple of moments with us today to go over his perspective. Now, Judge Skelly was also, uh, before he was a mediator arbitrator, he served on the bench as a Superior Court judge. And I believe, Judge, you were presiding judge for a while there as well? Associate presiding. Presiding of the Civil Department for a while, and then the court's associate presiding for a while. Great. So could we get a little background? How uh, long were you uh, a judge with the Superior Court? A little over seven years, I guess, Clint. Um, Started as a lawyer at a firm called Fenimore Craig here in Phoenix, and then after maybe about 10 years as a lawyer, Became a judge, um, was assigned to, you know, Maricopa County is uh, a large county, obviously, with a large court system. And so, like most of those, it's departmentalized. Uh, I started with a civil calendar, uh, then a criminal calendar, did a little bit of probate. uh, And then uh, that was out in the Southeast Judicial District, then came downtown as uh, associate presiding for, I think, about three years, and then presiding of the civil department for about two. And those last two assignments involved administrative issues as well as, you know, the usual judging. Great. And then uh, what made you want to leave and enter back into the private practice? Well, I had two kids when I got sworn in, and uh, about every two years, somebody new would show up at the house. And so uh, I had five by the time I decided, you know, I better get back into private practice and try to maybe save a little bit of money for all those college years uh, down the road. And that proved to be, I think, the right thing to do. I, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed the job. It, it, it's, uh, it's a privilege. It's an honor to serve. Um, and, and service is, is truly a descriptive term of it. I didn't particularly want to leave, but financially it made sense. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go back and do a lot of what I was doing on the court, you know, as a mediator and as an arbitrator. And that's what you primarily focused on since you've been a judge's mediation arbitration services. Yes. Uh, retired way back in 1999, so it's been about 18 years now, uh, which seems um, just incredible to me. Um, you know, I think we all realize how quickly the years pass but yeah it's um it's primarily mediation um uh, and arbitration and then uh services what what's described as a special master which is kind of a oh a little little bit of a judge in the private sector um you know oftentimes the parties will stipulate or the court will appoint uh, a special master or discovery master in a more complex case uh, in order to have somebody devote the kind of time necessary to resolving a lot of the issues that arise there, you know, discovery issues. Um, are particular documents privileged or not? And, uh, you know, sometimes that, that can involve uh, huge amounts of judicial time. And so um, to take care of that problem uh, because of the limited resources on the court, a special master is appointed. And given power somewhat similar to a judge, and you resolve the uh, legal issues, the parties have the the opportunity to object to a special master's finding. Um, the uh, The law, though, is pretty deferential to those discretionary rulings that are made 
by a special master um, in terms of discovery issues. Great. Uh, let's see, let's go back to uh, your experience dealing with homeowners associations and homeowners in HOAs. Uh, if you were to reach back all the way from uh, when you sat on the civil uh, as a judge on, uh, over the civil uh, bench and um, added up all the times you've handled in a homeowners association matter, whether for a homeowner or an HOA, and and add that to the mediation. Uh, services you provided. How many HOA matters have you involved, been involved in, you think? Oh, well, many hundreds. And I say that because, uh, you know, back when I was on the court in the mid to late 90s, I guess, um, construction defect litigation became um, prevalent. You saw a lot of it. And those are cases, of course, that are brought by uh, homeowners associations typically. Uh, against builders, um, developers, or general contractors. And so um, I distinguish those a little bit, you know, from the um, HOA versus homeowner or homeowner versus HOA or HOA board member versus HOA board member, um, those kinds of disputes. Um, and, you know, as a, as a mediator, as an arbitrator over the years, uh, I, I've... I've handled you know many hundreds of those construction defect cases. I have a, I have a hard time, Clint, remembering by Friday what I did on Monday or Tuesday. So to be able <laughs> to give you uh, an estimate of the number of homeowners association cases uh, that I've handled would be very difficult. I know I've handled many involving the other kind that I just described: um, uh, association versus homeowner, or vice versa, or even disputes. Um, Oh, among board members, um, uh, you know, lots of those, but I can't, I can't give you a number, um, a number while I was on the court, and then uh, obviously even more as a mediator because those cases are just perfect for mediation. Yeah, they are, uh, which is why we like to use you for mediation in these types of cases. Uh, if you were to uh, draw upon your experience as a judge and and um, think of maybe. A couple of pointers for boards and homeowners and HOAs. What would the advice be to them? What, what would what, what advice would you give them um, to try to help resolve their dispute? I think the best advice I could I could give uh, is at the outset, as best as it can be done at that time, knowing everything that can be known at that time, is get a lawyer who is uh, familiar with HOA cases. Uh, that's critical. It's like anything else. The more you do something, the more experience you get, presumably the better you get at it. And uh, lawyers that do that kind of work will have a bank of experience that they can draw from that will help them at the outset of a case sit down with a client or prospective client and really help them uh, make a good, informed business decision, a cost-benefit determination. There's a lot more to life than litigation, as, as, as you know, uh, and as most people know, but we're also human beings, and a lot of times we let uh, personal feelings, animosity, things that have built up over time uh, impact the way we 
we uh, decide what to do, you know, when it comes to litigation. And I think um, just having gone through so many mediations in these kinds of cases, um, the best thing to do is address that head on at the outset and um, as the lawyer help help a client make a good business decision. In other words, um, all right, here's the dispute um, about how this, how should this get resolved and how much is it going to cost us, you know, to uh, get to resolution and what are the consequences if we guess wrong, if there's an adverse outcome. You know, the law has the way of adding insult to injury a lot of times, especially in actions that arise out of contract, because not only does the uh, client that doesn't prevail get to pay their own lawyer his or her fees and costs advanced, but uh, you get to pay the other sides, you know, if there's, uh, if there's an adverse outcome. And that can be devastating sometimes. So many times we see cases that are driven uh, by the lawyer's fees. Um, the fees have just dwarfed the principal amount of whatever it is that's at stake, you know. And so people don't know that. They don't, they don't uh, I shouldn't say, you know, all people, but, but many don't, you know. There's, there's just a lot of, um, and, and I wouldn't either, you know, had I not had the, the, the background uh, as a lawyer and a judge. And, um, you know, the best lawyer you can get is one that is going to um, extract you from the litigation uh, with as little damage as possible um, and the best outcome possible. And, and part of that is making uh, just a good economic decision. Going to the attorney fees issue you just mentioned, when you sat as a judge on the bench and you were faced with an application for attorney fees, let's say in a homeowners association matter where the HOA is asking you to award them all of their attorney fees against a homeowner, um, what would you typically do to determine whether you're going to actually award those fees? You know, there are a number of factors in the case law that you look at, and they include things such as whether the litigation could have been avoided. Um, and that's why, you know, the good lawyers counsel clients to make a very fair and reasonable settlement proposal at the outset. Because if the other side uh, elects to go forward, you've done everything you can. You know, you've been reasonable. Uh, you've tried to resolve it short of litigation. The judge is going to look at that in terms of um, an award of fees. An award of reasonable fees is very much discretionary with the court uh, under the law. Uh, ability to pay is another um, factor. And ability to pay for the defendant that just lost the case? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the one that's on the receiving end of an application <coughs> for an award of attorney's fees. Um, if, uh, you know, if there's a real disparity between the parties uh, in terms of financial resources, if there's merit to the claim or the defense, even though it didn't, you know, carry the day, those are all things that go into sort of that, uh, you know, fairness um, determination um, uh, with respect to attorney's fees. So you mentioned the first factor being the what you what the association tried to do uh, before actually filing. You know, a lot of the cases that we end up dealing with are these enforcement cases where you have a homeowner that is technically breaching the Declaration of Covenants, Conditions, and Restrictions, or CCNRs, 
there's a provision in there that says, you know, you can't do this, but they're doing it. The association tries through fines or through just uh, meeting with them in a hearing at the board meeting, and it just feels like the HOA is not getting any relief. And they get other homeowners in the community that are starting to bark at them because there's a violation. When you have that scenario where an association at that point in time files a lawsuit against the homeowner, do you feel like that association typically has done everything it could to avoid the litigation? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, uh, again, it all comes down to, to reasonableness. Uh, uh, may, maybe there are some uh, minor things that you look the other way on because it's, it's not worth dealing with that particular homeowner over that particular issue. But when it is a legitimate uh, issue, when other homeowners are uh, upset about it, when they're demanding that the board do something about it, the board's kind of, you know, they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard spot at that point. And uh, you, you always want to be the one when you go into court uh, to be able to show the court, look, we, we've done everything we can, you know, uh, and here it is, and we've got a record of it, and, and uh, we can show it to you. Um, we gave this person every opportunity to comply with the CCNRs. Um, we, we've, we've sat down and we've met, you know, with, with him or her, their representative uh we've made various proposals other alternatives we can phase it in we can um, you know we've been flexible um then you've done all you can you know and then you have to go forward so as you go forward and if if the outcome is the, the judge ends up ruling in favor of the association obviously the next step is re- reimbursement of those attorney fees we were just talking about one of the arguments you always hear in the court and uh, probably at mediation as well is, well, if they don't pay the attorney fees, then all the innocent members in the community that aren't part of this are going to have to absorb that cost. What are your thoughts on that? It's a legitimate argument. Um, you know, again, if you've given the other side every opportunity <clears throat> to do what is pretty clearly required be done under the CCNRs or bylaws or otherwise, um, then, uh, you know, the court has to look at that and say, yeah, this board had no alternative but to go forward. Why should all of the the innocent homeowners, um, you know, risk an assessment in order to uh, pay uh, fees that should be borne by the one who just didn't get it despite all of these um, opportunities to have gotten it. You know, I've, I've heard rumors um, from some friends of mine that uh, homeowners association files in the courthouse are kind of like the red files <laughs> where, you know, there are these uh, litigation cases that are complex litigation, millions of dollars on the line. Then you have on the docket, you, you just have a jury trial for, I don't know, two weeks on a million dollar case. And then, then you have a an evidentiary hearing on whether the uh, homeowner should paint their building a, a different variant of uh, gray. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, those kinds of issues? Do you feel like that rumor is true that these HOA cases are kind of dog cases? No, you know, judges are human, and when they get into the lunchroom uh, and, and talk about what they did that morning, um, you know, those kinds of things come up and. Uh, and, and we chuckle about some of it, but the truth of it is, Clint, it's, it's, it's like you've probably heard uh, 
judges um, maybe uh, complain a little bit about uh, hearing discovery motions or the kinds of cases that you're mentioning. But the reality of it is that for those participants, it is extremely important. And, you know, if we didn't have a civilized way of resolving disputes, that being going down to the courthouse, well, of course we have arbitration in other ways now, you know, but there, there has to be uh, a way to get those things uh, resolved and, and hopefully in the most efficient way possible. So I think, you know, I think uh, a, a lot of judges uh, will rally a little bit, you know, and just and tell themselves, look, this is just as important as the, the last the million dollar uh, case that we just tried in the jury trial for these people, and I'm going to treat it that way. So, yeah, some, some of the disputes become personality disputes, and you and I can chuckle about some of the uh, intra-board disputes, and, and you know, um, a lot of times you, you, you get some very dedicated people on those boards, there's no question about it. Um, and, and sometimes you get people on the board because others don't want to do it, you know, and they have the time to do it and the, and the inclination to do it. And sometimes, uh, you know, you've heard about losing, losing sight of the forest for the trees, you know, they, they, they get too bogged down in some things that in the whole scheme of things don't really amount to a whole lot. And, you know, those are the, those are the, the, the people I think that you got to watch out for a little bit. You want people with good judgment on the board. You know, if if there's no other, no other criteria to look at, do they have some common sense? Do they have some judgment? Those are the people you want to have on your boards. Sure, in the perfect world, of course, right? Right. Um, okay, let me ask you a couple other questions. So, these questions came from a lot of my client base, um, just because they always ask me these questions, and I answer them to the best of my ability based on my experience. It, one of the questions is what Clint uh, when we're in litigation what would it uh, what would you, what can you do to make the judge happy and in litigation what do you do to make the judge angry and my response to that is well first of all before the lawsuit's filed let's make sure we've done everything we can to try to resolve the problem as you've mentioned the second thing is uh, when we're in litigation one of the things that I think judges hate and as well as mediators and arbitrators are these discovery disputes that you mentioned where the parties can't work out an, an issue on whether a document's disclosable or not. Um, when it comes to that, what is it um, in your mind uh, that makes you the angriest when you, when you look at these files and what attorneys do? If you had advice, what would you give me as, as an attorney, litigating attorney, on things to avoid? Well, I don't, I, I tell you the truth of it is, uh, I didn't get mad at very many lawyers over the years. I mean, there were, there were times here and there where there would be something that involved um, maybe some dishonesty, you know, or trying to pull a fast one, trying to slip something by. Uh, those are the kinds of things, Clint, that get anybody mad in any context much less judge for, you know, uh, versus lawyer. But I, I mean, honestly, looking back over 30 years of doing this, most lawyers are in there giving it their absolute best, you know, for their client and trying to do it um, as efficiently as they can. One thing that can get frustrating, and sometimes it's somewhat out of the control of the lawyer, is that 
the attorney's fees um, are, are paramount, you know, and um, uh, like I say, sometimes that that is outside of an individual lawyer's control because there's a whole other side to the case, you know, trying to trying to do things and. Uh, you know, we we as lawyers would have trouble affording ourselves. I mean, it's just the nature of the legal services these days. There's a lot of costs associated with it. And uh, uh, but you know, I I I have double respect for the lawyer that uh, tries to always do something efficiently. He tries to do it the easy way. Um, you know that that's that's the most frustrating thing uh, that I see is when there's uh, doing a mediation, for example. You know, and there's a relatively small case, a, a five-figure case, less than a hundred thousand dollars, and the attorney's fees are a couple of hundred thousand dollars. The attorney's fees and the cost, and I just you know you you think, well, where where's the the reason in this? You know, why does this make sense? It it just doesn't. Um, anyway. That's that's probably what gets me more frustrated than anything. Just the attorney fees issue, right? I think so. Yeah. Glenn. I, 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 yes, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're not alone on that. That's that's the prevailing notion that I hear. Um, fast forwarding a little bit, another question we always get from our clients is, okay, so we get uh, a ruling from the court. The court orders the um, defendant cure the violation. You know, paint the house or remove the vehicle or modify the structure so it comes into compliance with the documents and they don't do it so the question is okay we've spent all this money and time the judges ruled in our favor now what do we do and uh, obviously there's uh, contempt proceedings that we can can pursue but oftentimes the 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 board doesn't understand the contempt proceedings and they um, ask whether the person could just go right to jail uh, did you ever handle contempt proceedings uh, when you sat on the bench? I did, but I rarely had to. Most judges rarely do these days. And, you know, it, it uh, I mean, it's, it's an effective remedy. Okay, there's no question. But judges going to not just throw somebody in jail right away. You know, they're, they're going give, to give this person every opportunity to do it the right way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I suppose at some point you run out of options, and uh, that's what's left. And it's there. Um, I, I got to think back, Clint. I'm not sure I ever, I ever um, uh, put put somebody in jail. You know, as a result of contempt. Now there were a lot of sanctions, monetary sanctions, and things, which that can change behavior as well. You know, um, there are things that can be done short of probably that ultimate uh, contempt sanction or sentence to a jail term. I've only had one case, you know, where the judge, after the third contempt hearing, uh, six months, seven months, eight months later, said, listen, uh, I've given you every opportunity. You either fix it or I'm going to ask you to go to sit in jail for a couple days and think about what you're doing. And then, you know, the remedy occurred and we, we got everything taken care of, but it took three contempt hearings. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, in that situation, usually what I'll ask the court to do is give us a self-help remedy and treat that cost incurred as a, you know, a continuing lien on the property. Great way and, to handle it. I mean, and that way, if, if they don't pay it, we can foreclose. Yeah. Um, right. And that usually is an easier 
outcome than going to jail, but definitely the judge would prefer that. Yeah, sometimes it, that's not the remedy available. You just can't do it. Yeah. And um, so, anyways, um, have you ever had to sanction an attorney? Um, I have, and uh, it's not pleasant. I don't like to sanction anybody. I, you know, I just don't. It's it's. Uh, it should be a last resort. Uh, it is a last resort, but the rules also call for it. You know, when there is, um, well, you know, we have Rule 11, uh, where you make certain allegations without a factual or legal basis. Uh, you're subject to sanctions against you individually as a lawyer. Uh, there are also um, some statutes and rules that uh, allow for that. And w look, when it's Oh, say it's a disclosure issue. You know, um, there's there's not been adequate disclosure. Um, you have to have a culprit hearing. You know, well, who's at fault for that? Is it the client or is it the lawyer? And when it's clear that it's not the client, you have no alternative. You know, the the sanction is against the the lawyer. So, you know, it's just a just another another lesson. And most ninety eight percent of lawyers, you know, fully understand it is. Our disclosure rules require full and fair disclosure, and there is no more hide the ball. Um, you know, I know lawyers have to tell clients at the outset, look, whatever you have, whatever piece of paper you have that relates to this, um, we've got to turn over, and there's just no two ways about it. And if you're not willing to do that, you go find yourself another lawyer, because I have to, and I'm not gonna risk my license um, because you want to withhold some piece of paper. That's a great point because there are boards out there and there are homeowners out there that would prefer to keep some of their emails secret right? <laughs> and not disclose those personal emails when, uh, you know, under Arizona law, that it's an open book essentially. Right. So, well, listen, I really appreciate you coming down and spending some time with us today to go over some of the thoughts that you have on litigation and HOA matters and, and the advice and the um, input you've given us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Clint.